Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and in this episode we're looking at the Blitz. But not the Blitz that you might think of when you first hear that term. Of course, we think of London, understandably. We think of the Blitz spirit but also the sheer destruction that was dealt on the capital city. However, there were many different Blitzes across the UK. There was the Blitz on Liverpool, on Hull, on Cardiff, on Bristol, on Coventry, Southampton, Swansea, Belfast, Glasgow. In fact, it's hard to find a major city in the UK that didn't undergo severe bombardment by the Luftwaffe. Every individual part of the UK was bombed. One of these was the Plymouth Blitz. Now, Plymouth was bombed on 59 separate occasions during the Second World War, resulting in over a 1,000 civilian deaths. And to take us through step by step just the impact this had on Plymouth in terms of its people, but also in terms of the city itself and the lasting legacies of that considerable destruction, we have the brilliant Harry Bennett from the University of Plymouth. Harry spent the last 25 years researching this, and the story he tells is, well, it's remarkable that it's one that we just don't already know about. So, here he is, Harry Bennett on the Plymouth Blitz. Hi Harry, thanks so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay, although I'm afraid some of your listeners may find me a little gravelly as a result of some sort of chest infection or something, which I've picked up. But hey-ho, we'll struggle through it. Oh, well, I hope you have a swift recovery, especially in time for the bars to be opening soon in Plymouth, I hear. Well, I do happen to have a bottle of whiskey by me just to ease my vocal cords, so we don't even need to wait for the bars to actually open. (laughs) You sound like a historian and an academic. Would, by any chance, that be your job? Uh, Yes, I deny it quite frequently, but yes, I'm an associate professor at the University of Plymouth. You start using academic titles with them as the general public, and usually the walls immediately go up in terms of, ooh, I'd prefer not to do that, at least not until I actually pick people's brains, certainly about their own experiences. I think that makes perfect sense. Well, Harry it is, 
And it seems pretty apt that you're based in Plymouth because that's what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about an aspect of the Second World War that I would say, and I think you'd agree, has been pretty unfairly marginalised from the national story. And this is the Plymouth Blitz. So, what was the Plymouth Blitz and where did it begin? The Plymouth Blitz, in a nutshell, is a series of very heavy raids which begin on the 20th of March, 1941. There's a break towards the end of March and then they restart at the end of April 1941. Seven nights of very heavy bombing which effectively erase the city centre of Plymouth. And they also do considerable damage to some of the outer-lying districts of Plymouth, including Devonport, which is home to the critical naval base. The Devonport Naval Base, which is a vital part of Royal Navy power projection in the 1940s, but also even as far as the 21st century. So seven heavy raids are sufficient to rip the heart out of this city. They completely transform a city which has effectively grown since the days of Drake, which there have been many fine buildings created. It's a beautiful city. Dartmoor Granite used to create fantastic public buildings. Some of the greatest architects of the day are busy building in Plymouth. And then in seven nights of raids, it's gone. And what we are left with after March, April 1941 is a city which has effectively been reduced to rubble, in which the population of Plymouth has effectively been halved, and in which the surviving population has effectively got to live amongst the rubble, which is slowly cleared to begin the process of rebuilding the city of Plymouth in the 1950s. So this is a dramatic moment in the history of Plymouth. This is a complete departure point for the kind of slow evolution of the city and effectively a move towards a rebirth which involves a planned city using modern methods of planning in the aftermath of the Blitz. But to many Plymouthians, after 1950, as the city is being rebuilt, they still continue to hanker after the old city. They still look back fondly on this city that they had known, familiar landmarks that had been erased, certain businesses which literally go by the by, and they continue to hanker after that old city. And it's still there today in the 21st century. This sense of a ghostly city that once was, which was erased in seven nights of heavy bombing in 1941. So it's pivotal in the local history of Plymouth. But of course, what we also need to consider as well is the way in which that local history intersects with a national picture. And here I think the story gets very interesting indeed. OK, well, I'm on tenterhooks. Tell us more. Well, we're now at the 80th anniversary of the Plymouth Blitz. The city is commemorating those events with a series of events, some of which are focused on particular localities, some of which are more academically based, i.e. they come out of the university. So a whole range of different commemorations are taking place. But of course, Plymouth isn't the only city which is hit in 1940, or indeed 1941. The London Blitz, which really begins in September 1940, by late 1940 has given way to attacks on multiple other UK cities. Coventry is perhaps the most famous series of Luftwaffe raids which destroy Coventry, but you look at a series of other UK cities, principally ports, so places like, for example, Hull, Merseyside, Clydeside, Bristol, 
And Plymouth is one of those cities that is caught up in what the Germans call the Battle of the Ports. They have a conception of what's taking place as representing a whole, not a series of one-off localised events. But in the UK in the 21st century, that's how we remember these things. That, as it were, what we don't establish as historians, what we don't see at the national level, is how all these raids join together and what they actually mean. So, in other words, we still live in a Britain where the national story of the Blitz is dominated by that wonderful image, perhaps, of St Paul's Cathedral wreathed in smoke. We still have a national story which is about the East End cheerfully going down into the tube stations and singing local hits of the period to maintain morale. We have a story of the Blitz, which is truly national, but whose image is still dominated by London. So what we're missing is this sense that these attacks are part of a coordinated whole, and perhaps we should treat them as such. Okay, I need to hear more about this coordinated plan for bombing the ports in the UK. It makes sense when it comes down to the military ports, but was this also a part of a Luftwaffe strategy to ensure that there was an increased chokehold put on the food supplies of the British people? Yes, effectively. I mean, it's really rather interesting. If you look at the instructions which the German Air Force is given at the start of the Battle of Britain, and we can crank it back to that point. So in June, July 1940, we can begin to look at what's taking place in terms of Luftwaffe strategy. And on the 2nd of July, the Luftwaffe is directed to the following. To the interdiction of the channel to merchant shipping, to be carried out in conjunction with German naval forces by means of attacks on convoys, the destruction of harbour facilities and the sowing of mines in harbour areas and the approaches thereto. That's number one. Number two, the destruction of the Royal Air Force. Now, the Battle of Britain, as we know, actually begins with what they call the Channel Struggle, air battles over the Channel convoys. And from that point onwards, then it begins to spill out in other areas, in other ways. It involves attacks on airfields and later on it involves attacks on London. Effectively, the Luftwaffe loses that central focus on what they're supposed to do, which is effectively to help the German Navy strangle the British war economy. The Germans do not believe that aerial bombing is sufficient to bring the British to their knees. They don't believe that that is possible. They are not equipped with an air force to do that. They do not have a strategic plan to do that. But they do know from the days of the First World War just how effective the U-boat arm has been. They do know how reliant the British are on their seaborne communications. So to the Germans, to the Luftwaffe, to the Kriegsmarine and the German High Command, the Luftwaffe's principal role, perhaps, yes, destroy the Royal Air Force, that's almost a kind of a secondary thing, but really hit the British on the economic level. Prevent them getting the supplies, the food, the goods from America, which will allow them to rebuild their military forces. And that's the way that we bring the British to their knees. Now, in a sense, Goering goes off-piste. His desire to allow the Luftwaffe to win the Battle of Britain, 
to secure victory with the aerial arm that he controls. That cost them very dearly. And in February 1941, basically the German High Command reiterates that central focus, your job is to help the German Navy in the struggle in the Atlantic. So, if you can hit ports and cause chaos, great. If you can destroy cargoes as they're lying alongside in port or have been offloaded into warehouses, great. If you can hit repair facilities for ships damaged in the Atlantic, perfect. If you can damage shipyards, which will turn out more merchant ships, more escort vessels, which might tilt the balance in the Atlantic, perfect. And if you can hit cities like Plymouth with Royal Dockyards, which are so important in terms of facilitating the global reach of the Royal Navy, absolutely perfectly. So in other words, what we're dealing with here, I think, is a German conception of how they secure victory over England. It isn't necessarily an invasion that they're driving at. What they're looking to do is to fight an action in support of the German Navy because in 1917, its U-boats had come so close to putting the real stranglehold on the British. So maybe we can do that again in the circumstance of the Second World War. Wow, that is an astonishing history, isn't it? And it really puts Plymouth's place in this front and centre and explains why it becomes an important target. So tell us, how does this play out in the Plymouth case? When does this start and what level of destruction does it reach for the city and the people of that city? Really, it's very simple. that In the British conception of how the war is going to be fought, Plymouth is so far west, they don't need to worry about it. In other words, the British conception of the Second World War is it'll be a lot like the First World War. We send the British Expeditionary Force to France and Flanders. They support the French behind the Maginot Line. And basically, the war is fought across that line and we hold them in Europe. We don't need to worry about places like Plymouth because they're well beyond the range of the German Air Force. We don't need to worry necessarily about doing too much to protect the citizenry. We can evacuate children from London, which might be in danger, and send them down to the West Country. That'll be safe down there. But of course, the defeat of France in June 1940 completely alters the strategic picture. And now on the other side of the channel, you have the development of a network of U-boat bases at places like Brest, La Rochelle, Saint-Nazaire. And you also have the German Air Force moving in to take up ownership of those airfields, which are very recently being vacated by the French Air Force for the purposes of flying across the English Channel to attack the British. So basically places in the West suddenly become a lot more vulnerable and at the same time Britain's vital lifeline to North America also becomes a lot more endangered by the fact that the German Navy has effectively got relatively easy access to the Atlantic. So two things are beginning to play out in terms of Plymouth's position. English Channel, vital for the Battle of the Atlantic, but also now vulnerable to German Air Force units in Western France. And it's arguably a recipe for disaster. Even though Plymouth effectively lay beyond the effective reach of the German Air Force, it's often said that the first air raid siren sounded minutes after Neville Chamberlain in September 1939 had given his unconsequently we're at war with Nazi Germany speech. And during the course of the war, we have a series of raids. We have some 59 attacks 
with the air raid siren sounding over Plymouth something like 640 odd times or thereabouts. So we have a series of attacks and during the course of the war we have numbers vary but something like 1,172, 74, 75, 76 people who are killed as a result of air raids. Most of them are in this March-April 1941 period. There are other attacks. There's lone intruder attacks in 1943. There's a renewal of German bombing in a serious way in May 1944 as basically spoiler attacks for D-Day. So both Portsmouth and also Plymouth get hit during that period. Now, if we begin to think about those kind of numbers... We are dealing here with a human loss of life, which, tragic though it undoubtedly is, it doesn't bear any comparison to the numbers of fatalities which are being racked up when RAF Bomber Command begins to attack German cities. So we're dealing here with an event which is tragic, but fortunately, in a sense, we avoid those absolutely mass death tolls running into the tens of thousands that we see in attacks in 1943-1944 on German cities. But undoubtedly, the fabric of the city is what takes the principal hit. So during the course of the Blitz, Plymouth loses, in addition to thousands of private houses, 26 schools, 8 cinemas and 41 churches. The urban landscape of Plymouth is effectively devastated. I mean, literally whole areas of Plymouth which are simply reduced to rubble. So the principal effect is on the built landscape of Plymouth, and that's going to have a very, very long impact in terms of the citizens of Plymouth. Rubble, that term really does epitomise what happens there, doesn't it? Rubble yes. evokes so much imagery. And you even look at photos from the 1950s. You know, the post-war generation are growing up in streets where there might be a couple of really beautiful 18th century houses. There might be, for example, Devonport Town Hall in the background. But the eight or so properties which were below that, they're simply playing amidst the rubble of where they once stood. And that obviously has a real lasting legacy. And indeed, if you wander around Plymouth today, you can do it with any Blitz city. You suddenly encounter a street that ends rather strangely. You know, why is there this little grassy bit here on the end of this row of houses? Why is it that we have this row of 19th century rather grand villas and then suddenly in the middle of it, these couple of 20th century intrusions, perfectly nice houses, but, well, why the gap? Why did that take place? And, of course, if you look, for example, at Plymouth from a distance towards its city centre, you can literally pick out the surviving buildings, literally using the fingers on your hands. You can see the church steeples. You can see one or two older buildings. But equally, you see a city centre, which is effectively, from the 1950s and 60s, brand spanking new, because what there was has gone. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. 
We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. 250 plus German bombers, their typical modus operandi is to start out dropping incendiary bombs. Now, these incendiary bombs, if you've never encountered one, they're almost the same kind of diameter and length as a roll of kitchen foil. They're aluminium, they're packed full of incendiary material, and they flutter down by the thousands. They don't weigh a lot, but their primary job is to have just enough weight to ideally crash through a slate roof and start a fire in somebody's loft. That's the way you start a conflagration. So we have literally tens of thousands of these being dropped. In one raid, it's something like 37,000 of these incendiaries are reckoned to have fluttered down. And they are literally falling from the skies like confetti. And they're starting fires here, there and everywhere. Now, of course, civil defence has done the job you know there's a fire service but there's simply no way the fire service can respond to every given threat so citizens are trained in the use of sand and stirrup pumps getting the flaming device 
out and these things really do burn this isn't like a candle that's slow burning these things really burn and you can go onto somewhere like youtube and you can look at some of the old air raid precautions footage to prepare feed people to deal with incendiary bombs and you will see just how nasty these damn things were and of course they're lodging in all sorts of strange and unusual places you know some's coming down in people's gardens quite often they're lodging in the gutters of buildings so you've got people literally in the middle of raids trying to shin up the side of their house to pick out a burning incendiary bomb and of course in many cases they're too slow to actually do it but quite a good number are actually coming down through the roofs and they're starting fires now the fires are particularly devastating indeed there's some really i think it's quite ghostly in the bbc sound effect archive I came across this a few years ago and I came across it as a 45 RPM vinyl record when one BBC studio or another was getting rid of its old hard copy digital sound effects that you could use on any given program. The sound effect that they used at some point in the 60s and which is still in the BBC digital sound effect is the sound of burning flames from the Plymouth Blitz of April 1941. So in other words, you know, BBC Studio needs a sound effect. We need burning. You may well be listening to the actual flames of Plymouth being consumed. That's how nasty the fires are. But of course, Plymouth, with many of its grand buildings, and of course, we've also got to remember it's a naval city. So many of its buildings are built in the 18th century, in the 19th century, and they're using massive stone built structures. So the Germans are throwing in a very unhealthy mix of high explosive bombs. Now, they will be typically up to the 200 kilogram Hermann bomb, but also sea mines are being dropped as well, simply because you want to take out a structure. A sea mine dropped from a great height is rather a good way of actually bringing down a building. So imagine a city on fire. This is typically the way the raids start. We get a fire going. We're marking the targets for the next wave of bombers. And then in comes the HE dropping bombs which will literally blow apart a building or indeed take down buildings just by the pressure wave so you've got absolute chaos taking place on the streets of Plymouth and indeed the fire service is simply overwhelmed they simply cannot deal with it water mains are disrupted they're broken that creates a certain issue but of course being by the sea there can be a little bit of improvisation so we do have accounts of the fire service actually pumping water out of the sea at places like Mutton Cove, which isn't far from where I am now, to actually try and deal with some of the fires. But as other units begin to come in from the surrounding areas, so for example, we have units which come in from Saltash, which is in Cornwall. We have units which come in from Tor Point, again in Cornwall, and indeed further afield in Devon. Sometimes they're actually finding the hoses that they've got and the hydrants on the streets of Plymouth won't couple together that unfortunately different fire services are using different specs and in the circumstance of the Plymouth Blitz it isn't all going well together so there are some lessons that I think come out of this for the longer period but quite simply it wouldn't have mattered how many fire service units there were quite simply Plymouth was being overwhelmed the number of volunteers isn't sufficient the fire service isn't really able to get a grip and the fact that the Germans march and then in April are coming back for nightly raids just increases the devastation. 
was reading the account of a young woman at the time, Margaret Morell, who says she was 13 in Plymouth when she joined the St. John's Ambulance to help out with the sheer amount of civilian casualties and destruction. So this really was a whole town effort to try and battle the Blitz. Yeah. You know, here's one of the other things that I think is kind of problematic about thinking about the Blitz of 1940-41 on a national level. Every city is different. Now, I would argue there's a real difference between the likes of a London and the likes of a Plymouth or indeed a Hull. You know, in London, you've got a more mobile community. You've got people who perhaps are passing through, in a sense, waves of immigration. You've got much more frequent movement of people. In a dockyard town like Plymouth, you've essentially got a real sense of civic pride and a recognition that Plymouth's job is the Royal Navy. So in other words, Plymouth is actually quite a militarised town, both in terms of the presence of the military, but also within the civic culture. This sense that whatever we personally may feel or experience, we've got to get things running again for the national purpose, which is expressed through the Royal Navy. That's really quite strong. You know, we've got to get stuff moving again. Our job is to get the dockyard working We've got to maintain that because that's what the food supplies to the United Kingdom are in part depending on. So I think there's a kind of slightly different vibe in some of these cities. And some of these port cities, they are different. You know, Merseyside's got a separate vibe to Hull. And Clydeside, similarly, you have communities here which are being hit hard, but they're not being hit in quite the same way, perhaps, that London was. So in other words, I think there's a greater perhaps coming together of individuals in some of these port cities, especially after the kind of hungry 1930s, when people have literally been having to rely on each other for literally survival in some respects, economic survival. And I think that conditions things towards a very united response on behalf of the ordinary people of Plymouth. Blitz spirit is obviously something that people talk about. I can't really speak with any authority on whether that Blitz spirit exists beyond Plymouth. I suspect it does, but in Plymouth, you definitely see it. But it's there within the pages of the newspapers at the time who report on almost the kind of abnormal cheerfulness of Plymouthians who've been bombed out and are getting on with their business. There's almost a sense of outrage, you know, but surely, you know, you must be devastated, you must be upset. How can you be carrying on normal life? So certainly you see that sense of a blitz spirit in places like Plymouth, and I suspect you see it in a large number of other areas as well. Now, I've got to admit, I really didn't know much about the Plymouth Blitz at all. And it got me thinking, because I've done research in the past on the bombings of Hull and places like Grimsby. Again, when you talk about the Blitz, places that people really don't know about on a national scale. And I know the reason for that. And that's because whenever a town up in the northeast was bombed, it was put in the papers nationally as a northeast coast town. That was the idea. It was kind of an active censorship so that the nation wouldn't see just how bad things had got. Was that the same for Plymouth? <laughs> almost down to exactly the same language. So instead of a town in the northeast, it's a town in the southwest. They literally use the same language. Now, that obviously raises some fairly significant issues about why that censorship was taking place. Because actually, I very strongly suspect that the extent of those attacks was fully known at the national level. 
In other words, you don't need to put it in the pages of the Times newspaper to know how bad things have been. Word of mouth is a wonderful means of communication. News spreads. So, okay, you probably wouldn't report on the full gory details of what has taken place. But the levels of national censorship are quite interesting in their ineffectiveness. Because one of the things that you've got to imagine, somewhere like Plymouth, and I'm sure it's true of every Blitz city, and I've talked to a large number of Blitz survivors over the years, and they will tell you their stories. But what you also see as well, Plymouth is in West Devon, but if you go into central Cornwall, or North Devon, or East Devon, and central Devon, you will find substantial numbers of people who remember as small children being taken outside, and in some cases they can hear the explosions. In many cases they are seeing often from a distance of 30 miles away, flames which are reflecting on the clouds of the night sky. And they know what's taking place. They're not fools. Later on, word of mouth will begin to fill in what's taking place. But you literally have a kind of halo effect. People know what's being hit, and they can surmise from what they're seeing in terms of the reflections, and in some cases the sound, just how bad things are. And I suspect you've got that for every Blitz city, every Blitz port town. So I imagine that what you've got, it's not just the locality that's hit, it's the region. So the region knows these things. These things become literally common knowledge. The interesting thing about a lot of cities, particularly port cities, is the network effect. I'm not positing some highfalutin new kind of history here, but you know, somewhere like Plymouth, which is a manning depot, there are ratings all around the world, Royal Navy ratings, who will hear on the grapevine by word of mouth, by people coming out, exactly what has happened. And we'll have questions and we'll be receiving mail from perhaps loved ones in Plymouth about what's taken place. Yes, some of it may well be censored, but the news will get through. So actually, what's censored in terms of the national press isn't censored in terms of the ordinary citizenry of the United Kingdom. The news gets through in all sorts of interesting ways. And very clearly, people know in considerable detail what has taken place. But does this censorship in the national press affect and stifle our understanding of that history today? Yes, and that is the $64 million question. Why is it that at the national level we don't actually recognise the attacks on these cities for what they are? It's part of a campaign. The Germans called it the Battle of the Ports. You know, they're strategic directives, we can read it. So why is it that 80 years on we are not recognising it for what it is? Why is it that we in Plymouth commemorate the Plymouth Blitz and people in Bristol commemorate the Bristol Blitz and people in Hull commemorate the Hull Blitz and in Clydeside, etc., etc., etc. It's almost as if we don't want to recognise that actually the German Air Force didn't simply disappear in 1940. The film, The Battle of Britain, the one everybody knows. You know, Michael Caine and all the great actors of the 60s are in the film. And, you know, at the end of the film, we see the way in which the German soldiers are placing on the ground their life jackets, the invasion is over, and Britain has been spared the pain of invasion. The Battle of Britain has been won. But it hadn't been won. Far from it. The Germans had not given up hope by any way, shape or form. 
So in the popular memory, the idea that the, you know, the Luftwaffe suddenly disappears thanks to the RAF Spitfires and Hurricanes is a little bit disingenuous. And, you know, we think about the Battle of the Ports in 1941. Well, 1942, then, we've got the B-Decker raids, where the Luftwaffe is coming back and they're trying to erase cities like Exeter as a result of RAF bomber command attacks on cities like Lübeck. The B-Decker raids, another campaign. And then 1944, we have this campaign to try and disrupt the planned D-Day landings, where the Germans come back again and they are trying to very consciously use their air force for strategic ends. In the popular memory, we've kind of written the Luftwaffe off in 1940. They all disappear off to the Eastern Front. Well, yeah, they do. And then they come back. So there's something quintessentially wrong, I think, with how we're choosing to remember these events. And what that actually means is we're not seeing these local blitzers as part of a national story. Now, in some ways, this comes down, I think, to a sort of sacred touchstone of the British identity, which is the Battle of Britain. You can't claim victory in the Battle of Britain, and Churchill so badly needed to claim that victory, and then have, oh, oh, the German Air Force kind of, they haven't given up yet, have they? It becomes a bit of a problem. Now, in a way, people at the time actually recognised, I think, that that town in the northeast being attacked, or a city in the southwest being attacked, that's a kind of necessary thing. But in a sense, we've continued this wartime censorship, this wartime blinkered approach through into the post-war period. And I don't necessarily think that serves us well. It doesn't aid our understanding of history. And certainly you see at the local level, you see this routinely, somewhere like Plymouth, it's kind of commonly bandied about. Plymouth, well, we're the worst blitz city after London, you know. And I'm sure you hear exactly the same thing on Merseyside, in Bristol, on Clydeside, you name it. So in other words, that history is broken down into these little pockets. And that's quite fascinating. And this touches, I think, on a wider issue that my own research is increasingly sort of quite fascinated by. And that is that the Second World War isn't really a national story for the British. That actually there are a whole series of local stories that what happens in the northeast is very different what happens in the furthest reaches of Scotland or Wales or the southwest. Yes, we can extract from these localities things to create a national picture, but actually each one's wartime experience is enormously different. And we haven't necessarily figured that into the way in which we begin to think about the Second World War. Well, I know that you are slowly trying to rectify this, and this year is the 80th anniversary of the Plymouth Blitz. So, where can people read, hear, and listen more about this? This podcast is quite a handy place to actually start. Plus, also, if you Google Plymouth Blitz or hashtag Plymouth Blitz 80, you will find the events that are on in Plymouth and the surrounding areas. You'll certainly see it all over Twitter as well. So hashtag Plymouth Blitz 80 is one way to go, or just Google Plymouth Blitz, and you will certainly see a lot of material that's actually coming out there in terms of audiovisual presentations, podcasts, live streams, you name it. And, you know, it'd be really good if we could actually, in some ways, begin to join up these local stories into a truly national story. Are there lessons that we haven't learned? I mean, I'll give you another example. During the Plymouth Blitz, there were two mass casualty events. 
mass casualties. This is when shelters get hit by large HE bombs. One was at a place called Portland Square in the middle of the city, where basically one side of a four-sided shelter gets taken out. Over 70 people are killed in that single explosion. You also have other mass casualty events which take place when, for example, shelters containing Royal Naval ratings are also hit. Now, what I wonder, what I strongly suspect, is, again, at the local level, the talk is always, you know, and this was the third worst loss of life in the United Kingdom as a result of bombing. But I suspect if you look at every one of these little local blitzers, they all have their Portland squares. They all have mass casualty events where you have multiple generations of the same family, whole communities being wiped out. But as it were, until we establish that national picture, we're never actually going to have this sense of what took place. Because in some respects, these mass casualty events perhaps raise issues about the extent of area precautions, about shelter design and construction. So I think there's still a lot that we can unearth about these blitzers of 1940-41 and indeed beyond. I agree. I think there's still so much work to be done. And if there is ever any inspiration needed to become a historian and research your local history and to connect it to the national history, then that was it. Harry, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.